Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with journalist Anand Giridharadas. There is a shorter produced version of this at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Um, yeah, so tell me where, what you're, where you've been, where you're going. That's a deep question. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been, so we, I, I did a big New York event last week in, in Manhattan, and then uh, two, and then two events in Philadelphia last week, and then we did a big Brooklyn launch last night, and then DC thing tonight. Another DC thing tomorrow, then Boston the next day, and on and on and on and on and on from there. Yeah. You know. Okay. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And maybe we can just create a little space of calm here for ninety minutes. That's that's <laughs> what I always count on from you. <laughs> I hope we can actually. Um, I hope I I I hope I can ask questions that you're not you know that we can walk down some paths that aren't happening um this is why i don't do i usually don't interview people on book tour um for this reason because you just get in these grooves right you and you start saying you know it's it's something meaningful but you say it so many times um so we'll yeah but i don't i don't fear that with you okay good yeah well we're gonna we'll work against that um chris how are we doing oh okay uh, um, okay, I'll tell you what I've been eating for breakfast lately. Yeah, okay, lately I have been soaking nuts, like pe- pecans and walnuts are my favorite, in macadamia milk. And then I eat that with blueberries and yogurt and cinnamon, and it's like the breakfast, it's my new breakfast of the gods. I feel this is like a right-wing fantasy of what people think N- NPR hosts NPR hosts eat and talk about. I know, but we're not going to put this on the radio. Maybe we should. Maybe. You well, know, some en- engineer at NPR is one day going to actually compile all the breakfast, all the breakfast clips, noted, and just do yeah. a whole it's podcast so on what people eat for breakfast it's around so the world. True. It's a bestseller yeah. waiting to happen. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It is. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's this is big, right? This subject is big. It is. Um, and there are lots of layers to it once you start going. Um, I, as you know, um, because you've been on the show before, I, I, um, I usually, I, I don't always, but I usually start with some question about, you know, the spiritual or religious background of someone's childhood. And we, we did speak about that once before. I mean, I asked you that kind of straight-on question, and you spoke about. Well, for one thing, you're you're a you know of a you're of a Indian American family of you know long lineage of Hindu practice, and you're kind of the generation that is where that bond of affiliation is loosening. Um, 
You talked about having a kind of civic spirituality, though, that has to do with your mm-hmm. your kind of belief uh, and trust that there are greater possibilities for what occurs between people um, than we than we perhaps know, and then than we perhaps always achieve. Um, but that that we can do more together than we do, and one of the things I kept thinking about as I was reading your book and as I'm getting ready to talk to you is, you know, that language of civic spirituality and and how there's a civic spirituality of American culture that's very close or that has elements in it or that that is related to what you're writing about. There, uh-huh. there is a faith in uh-huh. the market, and Correct. and a, and a deep respect for the creation of wealth. And yep. the influence that comes with that. I think these are two faiths. This is a story in some ways about these two rival faiths. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what we do alone, a faith in what we do alone versus a faith in what we do together. Yeah. And and and, and, in, and in American history and in American culture, you know, this is a very complex thing. So there's a there can be a really democratic, meritocratic view of that, that respect for the creation of wealth. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not just an economic framework. It's a moral framework. So I, I thought I might start, and we're, we're going to get into that, but I, I thought I might start by just asking, what was the background in your earliest life of experience and, being, and thinking about wealth? Yeah, that's really good because I think I was just thinking as you were saying that that I think I could tell a second uh, spiritual background story that's different from mm-hmm. totally different from the first show. That's actually much more real to me and more important to me, which is like my family's immigrant narrative and a lot of this book and things like that for me are, are working out. My, my family and some a lot of immigrant families kind of end up having this um, unconscious right wing like you pull yourself up. Mm-hmm. There's no one helping you. You did it all by yourself narrative. And a lot of my journey has actually been um, unlearning that. Hmm. Hmm. Um, okay. Well, let's the seven dollar store, you know, we yeah. came here with seven dollars, you know, that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's right. That's a merger of an immigrant story with the American story. Correct. And it's a very particular interpretation that leaves out a lot of details. Yeah. Um, so, um, so the so the book "Winners Take All" is 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 a book of reportage, right? It's mm-hmm. it's and it's it's a it's a it's a very pointed series of portraits and thinking, and it's the culmination um, of a lot of thought. And I also, I mean, what I'm interested in, what I want us to trace and kind of go into, here's the arc of your wrestling of what you're mm-hmm. writing about now. And mm-hmm. including the arc of the discussion that you want to spark spark now and that you're involved with now, you know, post-publication mm-hmm. as the book is out into the world. Yeah. Um, but it's really, um, it started with, and also full disclosure, you and I know each other and have actually had some meaty discussions about not about the book, but about some of these subjects that we that we both care about, uh-huh. and that are alive in the world. Um, uh, but the the origin story of of this battle cry of 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 the yeah, and I do feel actually like Winter's Tale is kind of a battle cry. Uh-huh. Um, is your time as a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute, and in fact, you and I met through some people you met there um, who are lovely people, and. I, you know, I just want to say I, I watched the that talk that you gave. What year was that? We didn't meet, met in that weird bus didn't, in Italy. No, 
Oh, you're right. We met in that word. Okay. I'm oh, sorry. Our origin story is different than I thought. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, um, what year was it that you gave that? That's 2015. 2015. And, the, and so I just want to say that that is an incredibly powerful um, speech. It's online on YouTube. Um, and it's called on YouTube, The Thriving World, The Withering World, and You. Was that the title you gave it? Wilting. 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 The Thriving yeah. World, The Wilting World, and You. Is that the title you gave it? And, yeah, and if I remember it. I was just walking into the room, like right before to do a mic check, and they're like, "Does it have a title?" And I was like, "I don't think it has a title." <laughs> and I was like, uh, "Let's do uh, it's like the thriving world, the wilting world." And oh, you, okay. they're like, "Okay, we'll just put you know, just put that in the schedule." Yeah, and, uh, well, I mean, the whole the whole speech was a surprise that no one knew anything about. So yeah, and you start out by saying that you'd been invited to speak about the theme of forgiveness, which was one of the threads in the previous book you'd written. But you began by saying to this room full of people, who, many of whom you, you knew well and, and cared about, um, at, uh, you know, that you weren't going to speak about forgiveness in that way they perhaps expected. And you said, after I have spoken, I will need your forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. Um, you said, I want to reflect with you on where we stand. And that was also really notable to me that you were speaking as a member of that community. Mm-hmm as a community on some of the injustices of our time. So let's just talk through some of the major themes of that, which all flowed into where you are today on this. You talked about the Aspen consensus, and that is really bigger than just what happens in Aspen. Aspen is kind of a, is a good Wait, lens. Are we recording lens. now? Yeah, we are. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I thought we were going to start with the other stuff. The what? I thought you wanted to start with the spiritual stuff. We did. We already did that. You got your answer. Oh, really? I'm oh, sorry. I thought we were just... <laughs> we'll come back to it. We're going to come back to that. Yeah, I, did, I didn't actually say what I want. I thought we were just... Sorry, I thought we were just, like, prepping. No, no, I don't prep because, you know, I, don't even, I won't even talk to anybody before the interview starts. No, so this is fine. No, really, it's all right. We'll come back to that. Okay. We're actually going to come back to that, that story, that immigrant story, that American story. Hello. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So. So. Yeah. So. T- so. Can we. Can we go into like what you know? Just kind of lead us into you know the Aspen consensus. What. What that is. What we. Yeah. Um. When I was in the fellowship, I was drawn into, I think, as many other people were, this idea that we were coming together to do good, and that there were people, you know privileged people, rich and powerful people coming together to help and make change and make a difference. And it was really um, an exciting experience, right? Like it was... It was mm-hmm. very, I mean, you yeah. sat with, with, with 21 people in this room and you discussed Plato and Gandhi and also Jack Welch, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, was a bit of a problematic sign in retrospect. Yeah. Um, and you talked very sincerely about what was going on in the world today? How could you make a difference? How could you start a project to help? And all of that seemed great. Um, but of course, I had you know, started to realize like, as I got deeper into that Aspen world that it was also a world where like Pepsi and Monsanto sponsored things and the Koch brothers sponsored things and Goldman Sachs sponsored our reunions. And like you started to realize that it wasn't necessarily clear that, that this enterprise we were part of was truly about world betterment and I basically 
became very interested in what this in the silences, what we were mm. not allowed to talk about, or what we kind of just by custom didn't talk about when we came together to talk about making the world better. And and I described kind of what we agreed to talk about and what we agreed to not talk about as the Aspen consensus. So the Aspen consensus was you can tell the rich and powerful in our age to do more good, but you can never tell them to do less harm. You can tell them to give more, but you can't tell them to take less. Mm -hmm. uh, you can tell them to share the spoils of extreme capitalism, but you can't tell them to, you know, renovate capitalism <laughs> so it's not so extreme. Capitalism, right. Correct. Right. Um, and oh. it seemed to me that what we were doing and coming together in this way was genuinely trying to help, genuinely talking about these problems, genuinely um, creating action and programs and, and little initiatives, thousands of little initiatives to help people. But in some deeper way, the whole thing actually, I started to realize, was a conservative exercise in protecting the system mm. that that kept us on top. Yeah, you. Sh I mean, you. Sh you just you shine a light on just language that we've all heard so much these days. That language that, on a superficial hearing, sounds good, right? Doing good by giving back. Um, but then you kind of peel away like uh, that also is an idea of generosity that is a substitute for the idea of justice I, I think the you're picking up on the language point is so important you know a lot of a lot of the I mean this is you know as unequal a time as America has been in a hundred years it's evidently as angry a time as it's been in a long time um, it's you know as democratically dysfunctional a time as it's been mm. um, and a lot of how we got there, in my view, is through seemingly innocuous language. Mm -hmm. uh, language that um, found ways to smooth over real problems so that we didn't address them and so that they festered and festered and festered. And so it's language like the win-win, which sounds great, but in some deep way is actually about rich people saying the only acceptable forms of social change are the forms of social change that <laughs> also <laughs> kick something back upstairs. Mm -hmm. um, and language like doing well by doing good, which again is like, you know, the only conditions un under which I'm willing to do good are conditions under which I would also do well. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you have these terms like thought leader. I mean, we all hear this term thought leader all the time. Well, one of the things I kind of try to parse is like what's the difference between a thought leader and a thinker and you really have this figure and this figure in our rising figure in our time the thought leader who's sort of the mm -hmm. the winner friendly thinker the thinker who um, sort of trims some of their diagnoses and prescriptions and looks at the world and what to do about it in ways that that kind of justifies the winner's position on top um, and those people get a certain kind of patronage and sponsorship and acclamation from um, from uh, the winners. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes if on the, like the darker corners of the internet, it's imagined that rich people are all sitting in a room, like, you know, making ho these horrible, evil schemes. And part of what I found was that a lot of these folks are incredibly decent and upholding an incredibly indecent system. And the way you get from one side of the river to the other from those decent people to the indecent system 
is the bridge of, you know, faulty assumptions and weird myths and bad ideas that have managed to really rise to the fore and conquer a lot of our culture. Yeah, and yeah, and I mean, even as you say, um, you know, you talk about the ultimate effect of, uh, you know, for example, win-win. Um, there's, there's definitely part of me, and, and I'm also part of this world. Is I mean, I think this is a conversation you and I, you and I have had online, uh, you know, on air and off. That you know, this whole conversation about the elites in our time, which is often being had by elites, not claiming the fact that you know the elites they are us. Um, so knowing, so acknowledging that there's part of me that that. You know, that I don't, I think a lot of these things that have gone wrong, like, you know, doing good by giving back, justifying, you know, being part of the, uh, not just being part of the problem, but perpetuating deep problems, making actual solutions harder to come by, to even think through, imagine getting to. That there, you know, that I don't think there's always malice, right? I don't think it was always malicious intent. One of the things you said in Aspen that day, is that one of the things you, and I think this was an Aspen that day, that one of the things you worried about that you would like people in the room to think about is that at this nexus of wealth and power and giving back, there is an underdeveloped sense of human darkness. So I'd really like for you to spin that out for me. And I think you're talking about both our the limitations of our sense of the potential for darkness in ourselves as well as in others. I think one of the, one of the things that started to fill me with unease in these spaces was what felt like an empty positivity. Um, and that positivity essentially takes the view that any kind of social problem is like an inefficiency problem or, or we haven't kind of turned the dials quite right. And if we just turn them a little differently or figured out how to maybe assign those teachers to this school or maybe just you know, had women lean in more, like just tweaks. If we just tweaked things and fixed things and scaled things and made things a little more efficient, um, we could get to the promised land. Mm-hmm. And when I say there's a missing sense of human darkness, that kind of view, although it's true for many kinds of problems in the world, it fails to describe a lot of problems in the world, which are problems of people having power that is unearned or using power unfairly and blocking other people's chance to live a full and decent life. And that is as much a part of the story of people, you know, wilting instead of thriving. And you can't talk about the struggles that women have to be full and equal members of society without talking about what men do. Mm-hmm. You can't talk if you if you insist on talking about that in a positive win-win way, you're tying, you know, one hand and four fingers on the other hand behind your back. And, and I also think that when you talk about a complex and openness to the complexity of this human darkness, you're also talking about, you're not just talking about things men do, you're talking about things men do that they have had no idea they were doing, right? Right. So would have had trouble, and you can translate this in, all, in every area, understanding that as a piece of darkness. 
Absolutely. And I mean, I see this so clearly in Silicon Valley, which, you know, in, in many ways, when I spend time out there, what strikes me is this is this is not Wall Street. You know, it's not it's not people trying to make the most money possible who are just paying lip service to things and going to a gala every now and then to, you know, keep the machine going. I meet people out there who I think truly believe and wake up every day trying to make the world better and truly think that they are doing so and that they that they're sitting on tools and and capabilities that could allow them to liberate humanity faster than than anybody on earth but because they're so confident in that and because they have such a particular definition of what betterment is and 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 what the right tools to to achieve it are there's a total blindness to the way in which the things they're inventing could have bad effects. There's mm-hmm. an assumption that the tools they're building will always make things better. The more people are connected, the more people right. are online, right. the more people are on Facebook, the more, the more, the more, it will always be better. And there's a failure to understand, like, the same tool. It's so obvious. Like, the same tools that will empower people to, you know, be online can very easily be used by the Chinese government to prevent people from speaking their mind in a way that actually makes it harder rather than easier to do so. That's just, that happens all the time in history. Yeah. The and, same tools. And you connect human beings, you get the fullness of human beings, right? You get the primal, exactly. trollish places in our psyches and you Correct. get our creativity and our magnanimity. Correct. Mm-hmm. And yes, something like Twitter, you know, has given marginalized and vulnerable people platforms and a voice to get things out there without having to, you know, have the op-ed page of the New York Times accept right. their submission. Right. Yes, that is true. But it has also exposed, like, every woman in the world to a level of digital catcalling and harassment that far dwarfs, you know, what any women ever had to deal with prior to mm-hmm. the Internet being invented. Um, and, and none of which is to say these tools are all bad. But if you don't have a sense of human darkness, if, if, you, if you just... Which I just want to say, let's just call it being realistic about how complicated we are, right? Like just, Correct. you don't have to, it, it, it's just a reality base about but, the human but, condition. But it's become, totally. Mm-hmm. But I think this is, you know, it's very interesting that a lot of the people, particularly in the Valley, you know, there's this thing of dropping out of, of college because one of the reasons these folks drop out is they feel they have the technical knowledge they need to get started. Yeah. And part of what they're dropping out of, in many cases, is the liberal arts education that mm. is precisely designed to give you these kind of frameworks to understand things like history is cyclical mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and like good things have bad effects and things, things mm. go ways that you couldn't anticipate. And just this normal understanding of how the human condition, as you put it, works. Yeah. And, and when you have a leadership, you know, people with that much power over humanity, that much power to decide, you know, more and more how children learn and how commerce works and how power functions. And they, and they basically have a, a naive childlike understanding that, you know, any tool that they invent will inherently make things better. Um, you actually end up with a very, very, you go to a very dark place. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this positivity has a long American lineage. And I think particularly an inheritance of kind of the latter half of the 20th century. Um, uh, 
you know, it's the mentality that gave us the idea of the end of history, um, which whatever people thought of that book really was kind of the way we acted as if until, until in fact, we're, we're speaking on 9-11, right? Until kind of September 11th, 2001, there was this wake-up call that history hadn't gone away. Um, and you just um, reviewed Francis Fukuyama's new book. Yeah, in, I did. In the New York Times Book Review. Um and I guess, you know, to kind of go back to this um, other long lineage that's lo- longer than this one, kind of our our faith in the market as an engine for that positivity, right? For that, for that, for mm-hmm. that greater, better, more, we'll fix it that does lie ahead if we just keep doing what, you know, if we just keep doing our thing. Um I mean, and I, I've, you know, you you talked about your your uh, your immigrant family story of um, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but you know, I just to me that's just an American story. I mean, I grew up in a small town in central Oklahoma, um, and I have the classic. You know, my father came from nothing, right? Dirt poor was a literal description, um, and. Was a self very proudly self-made man, um, and that is such an iconic American um, idea and I- idea of ourself that wealth, and also inside that is that wealth is a measure of hard work, and it's worthy of respect. Um, so I mean, t- and this is. I almost think what you're <laughs> describing is. And it actually almost goes beyond the the specifics of the market versus, you know, government, which is, I think we're almost talking about two parallel and rival spiritual orientations in Mm. America. Mm. I think there's, there's a spiritual orientation that celebrates what we do alone, what we each do alone. And there's a, and there's a rival orientation that celebrates what we do together. And as you were saying that, I was literally thinking of the week of two funerals a couple of weeks ago when you had John McCain's funeral and Aretha Franklin's funeral. Yeah. Um, and I'm riffing here, but but just watching them, what was very interesting, you know, the, the John McCain funeral was really, it was a celebration of like a heroic man, a man unto himself, a man who did heroic things and had great bravery and, yeah. and, and you know, was, um, you know, was, was a, was a, literally a pilot. I mean, just that that kind of iconic, a soloist, a maverick, a guy who you know marched to his own drum. And I think a lot of our love for him, um, as a culture, is a love for the soloist and a love for that idea of yep. what we do alone. And then the Aretha funeral was totally the opposite. It was a celebration of the idea of what we do together, and it was very much a celebration of a community. Yeah. And of a week. And where she came from. Correct. And yeah. of place and of the church and of the African-American community, the African-American church and that musical tradition and mm-hmm. all the other people who were part of that tradition. And, and, and I think that these are both very strong parts of our culture and that they map a little bit onto this or, or a lot onto this idea of, you know, the celebration of kind of a heroic soloist capital, capitalist pull yourselves up by the bootstrap story. But that's never been the only story. We've also also always had this this 
this story of of movements and of you know it, it wasn't you know individuals who got rid of the king of England I mean we like the most important things we've done in this culture have also been together and I think these these two tendencies what we do alone and what we do together have always vied for primacy in American life but they've at different moments um, and for much of the 20th century had a certain healthy tension mm-hmm. and I think right now the relationship between them is very unhealthy it's become a relationship of like mutual annihilation instead of a relationship of you know adversarial cooperation and you the story of you know the soloist the, and the market striver and the kind of frankly Koch brothers narrative of America wants to defeat and you know expunge from the record the idea that we do things together and you actually see both in the far left and far right in even in kind of the anti-trade nationalism you see a, a kind of rival tendency now to you know to talk about like what we what we do together in a way that leaves less and less space for the market and the idea of 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 the individual um, you know whether it's Trump, Trump's evoke or or, um, or you know, in the case of the the far left, I think people like Ocasio and and Bernie Sanders, and you know, who just don't don't really have much reverence for um, the capitalist tradition in America. And I think that whatever you think about any of those figures individually, I think we need to get back to a place where we understand both and celebrate both um, the very real heritage we have in this country of doing things alone. And of doing things together, and the relationship that those that those things have, because at our best, we do things together in a way that allows people to to do things alone, and we people <laughs> do things alone in a way that creates the opportunities to do things together. These things don't have to be at war with each other, but they are absolutely at war today. I one of the things that's been on my mind recently that I'm trying to think through, and I'd like to think through with you and see how you approach this is. Part of the problem and part of the difference between now and, you know, the mid-20th century <clears throat> is that we really don't, and I don't want to say we don't have a moral center of gravity, we don't have a vocabulary of morality or worth or value except for, um, you know, the creation of wealth or... Correct. Right? <laughs> I, I think about we this are as like really a second... impoverished. I'm going to use a wealth yes. analogy. We are really impoverished. Um, yeah, go on. I, I, I mean, I would think about this almost as like the the second hat problem, which is, I think if you if you were to go back a little bit in time and think about business people in 1950 or whenever, they would always have, in addition to their businessman hat, they'd have a second hat. And that hat may be just strong community member and t-ball coach and volunteer for the you know Rotary Club and whatever. Yeah. But that second hat was often a you know a spiritual hat. Yeah. They were in the church. They went to see other people in that church every week. They were they they had a a, a parallel set of values that were you know in some ways reinforcing of or in, in tension with the first hat. And I think what's happened 
in the business world is a lot of the people with wealth and power and real decision-making authority over how our society goes don't have a second hat anymore. They don't have some other set of values that competes with their business values. And so when a consultant comes to them and says, you know, you've been in Michigan for 100 years and you always acquired your spare parts in Michigan and you always, um, you know, kept your money in Michigan banks, but I can save you 16% on the parts and I can get you, you know, a 2% higher interest rate from the banks if we do the banks in in Korea and we do the yeah. you know spare parts in China. Um, I think if you have that second hat, if you have that spiritual anchoring and a, just a parallel language and or if you're really anchored in that physical community and those are your people, um, I think that deal becomes harder to take or you at least think about it a little more. I think in a world when people don't have those second and third hats, they're not really part of a community in a physical way. They're, they don't maybe have a spiritual, non-monetary language to weigh against that. That deal becomes a no-brainer. And I think mm-hmm. it may not be too oversimplifying to say what happened to our economy since the 70s is there were a lot of people. It was, it was consultants. It was financiers. It was shareholder activists essentially coming into somewhat stodgy, old-fashioned companies and offering them various ways of becoming better, that basically meant, you know, de-anchoring from community, you know, fracturing all the activities they did and doing each little thing in this optimal way. But that basically meant, like, not being part of a community, not treating workers particularly well, spreading risk, having contractors instead of employees, like, just not actually being part of the community and taking care of actual people. And I think your, your intuition is right that a lot of the people who said yes to that pressure and who did that and who really reorganized our economy and profoundly reorganized it so that now, like, your corner restaurant is, like, so optimized that they don't have, you know, they don't employ their own, you know, cleaning people, but will have that from a subcontracting company, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. I think a lot of that was in, abetted by just the lack of a, of a countervailing vocabulary. Yeah, I mean, so, um, and I, I, I think that it's you know the, that what you're describing that happened in the business world, it, you know, there, the the geological layer below that is 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 a is a story of of a real shift in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, Max Weber, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, right? Like, there's there's a the, um. This, there was even that language of the spirit of capitalism. And, you know, for such a long time um, in this country, there were, uh, you know, so we're, so let me just say this too, we're not going to go back to those hats, right? So we've moved from a, from a relatively homogeneous culture, and this is true of just about every place in the world, um, where religious identity had a place that at least... In this country, and I don't think it's never going to have. It's we we are in an in between time, right? Uh, uh-huh. per, perhaps I think that's a that's a best case scenario, that we lost a lot of um, values and and the and the manifestations of that did have to do with belonging to community, right? And stewardship of your community and 
and and and and stewardship of employees and um but it was connected it was largely connected to religious communities and religious values that people you know in fact honored in a way even if they weren't as active as other people um when we lot we've society has changed we have secularized but i think that what rushed in in the place of moral imagination was just the values of were economic values and economic that's metrics, exactly right. right? And that's However, not big I don't enough. Think that means not good that, enough. But I don't think that means that there can't be other second hats. No, right? but we haven't it, developed we have them to yet, right? Them. Like we're in this moment where I think the void and the consequences of the void. In fact, what rushes into the void is very apparent. That is right. That's what you're describing. Yeah. And 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 I think we should dwell for a moment on why that is, because as much as I am critical in the book of that of that being the the spiritual the market kind of being the spiritual tradition to fill that void i also understand the appeal of it from a slightly different point of view which is you know when i was a foreign correspondent in india um i watched as the market gushed in mm-hmm. to this very old culture and a culture in which so many things had prevented people from making their own destiny and realizing their dreams and escaping the you know niche of their father and grandfather and mother and grandmother and i watched as the market came in and cleaned out a lot of those cobwebs and actually valued people according to their talents instead of their caste yeah and value and you know and valued women according to their ability to be a bank teller not according to their genitals and or gender identity or you know what their mother thought they should do and that was an incredibly powerful thing to witness and i wrote a whole book about that you know I, like yeah. i i have seen the power of the mar- the agnosticism of the market when it comes to who you are and your background is a very powerful thing. And so I actually come to this with an understanding born of a different experience about why that is appealing to people. Um, but I think when it becomes the only language, when it becomes um, the only way of thinking about the right thing to do, it it leaves us with a very impoverished sense of how to live together it's 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 good for creating wealth and creating things and building things but it's not a guide it's not a useful vocabulary for living together yeah um i you know one of the points you make is that this regard for wealth and wealth as power and celebrity. I mean, these things are all intertwined, right? And that we have a reverence for these things in our culture right to left, right? This is not a phenomenon of any particular group. Um, but I, th- and I think, so I guess I just, you know, I keep coming back to also, I also have, I mean, I'm just saying, I also from growing up where I did with the father I had understand the really the the emancipatory power right that uh-huh. that 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 economic that this economic system can bring to people but the weird place we're in is because you point out that you know so we have this reverence and really this faith that that this that this is a way to pull yourself up and yet the bottom half of americans has not earned a dollar more in the last 35 years um 
but because we don't have this vocab any other vocabulary, I mean, we can't even have this conversation. The, this conversation about what's happening to the bottom half of Americans can't happen with the bottom half of Americans. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you an example <laughs> of, of, um, and I think we have a lot of, you know, frankly, phony ideas about virtue that that just kind of don't hold up. So, you know, um, I think if you think about people who who do a lot of, um, you know, these companies that do good works and, you know, Walmart that will do, you know, have a foundation or Coca-Cola or McDonald's and they'll all do these good works. Um, but at the same time, they're contributing to the very social problems that they, you yeah. know, through their business that they're that they're trying to remedy. And it, it actually doesn't make sense from a from a purely calculating point of view either. I mean, the social problems they're causing are usually on a much, much greater scale than what they're able to do. But somehow the language of good works um, is able to kind of paper over the what they contribute to. And, and I think and, it yeah, goes and, to something... And, and I'm also saying, like, somehow we still think it's good. It's like a basic good that a soft drink company should exist and make profits, right? Like, Correct. That is not questioned. That's that consensus you're talking about. Correct. And I think, you know, one of the people I I talked to in the book is Bill Clinton, and we had this whole conversation about soft drinks because he'd actually worked on the issue of childhood obesity and how do you actually (laughs) get get those cans out of, like, kids' hands when, you know, they're in public schools and vending machines in public schools. They're using their power as companies to get in there, fatten those kids, and shortening those kids' lives. And we had this whole argument about, like, wouldn't that be a good case for acting together, as in yeah. through government, through a movement, and protecting those kids and from across pre- predatory social, companies. class, Correct. economic lines. Correct. Yeah. And we had this whole argument because he said, well, no, because you got to, I mean, you got you to gotta work with the companies. You can't just regulate that because it's, it's always better if you can make it work in the private sector. And, yeah. you know, you got you to gotta have those companies innovate because they still have to make money. And right. it was this very weird conversation where I said, why do they still have to make money? I mean, why do, what do you care if they still make money? You're, we're trying to protect some kids from dying too young. Mm-hmm. What, what, and, and there's something in our culture where when faced with the fact of a child dying earlier in their life than they would otherwise. And we know that's happening. And we know it's happening because a powerful, well-connected company is edging into their school and, and pushing a product on them that they have, the kids have no power, politically, legally, otherwise, to, to thwart. And even then we say, well, the company's still got to make money somehow. Yeah. And we assume that is our problem. Yeah. I think at that place, as you say, an economic way of looking at life, but almost religion, has mm. has fully displaced um, what is to me a much more obvious and basic civic religion of just caring for each other. Yeah. I want to tell you a story that I have, I've told a number of times, you know, in the, since to the election of 2016, um, to various people, and it, and it, but it, and it only it occurred to me as I was going to write an interview that you would like this, and that it kind of flows into this conversation. Um, I was living in Berlin, in divided Berlin, in 1987 when Donald Trump wrote um, "The Art of the Deal," published that, wow. and um, 
And I, you know, I just also want to say, I think the name Trump has been, you know, spoken on this program maybe a handful of times. And so, you know, we're not going to talk about Donald Trump. But here's how I heard the name Donald Trump first. It was with one of the leaders of the Aspen Institute, Berlin, which was a really important place in divided Berlin. Quite a different role than Aspen Institute here has, but really significant. And um, this is somebody who, well, anyway, so he's so... So he had just come back from the States, and he, he mentioned Donald Trump in some conversation, in a, in a very positive way. And I said, who's Donald Trump? And he said, you've never heard of Donald Trump? He may be president one day. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is somebody who, if he's still alive... I think would be mortified in terms of like where he is on the political spectrum would be mortified uh, that that's what he said. But I, I think that it's easy to forget now with all the baggage we have that, that we do, as you say, we do live in a culture where for a long time we have expected or been very happy for businessmen to be philosophers, for billionaires. We want them to be for billionaires to be the revolutionaries. Correct, and, and I think Donald Trump is part of this big lineage. It's not a Republican lineage. Absolutely, and yeah. and the and and the proof of what you're saying is is actually contained in another thing, which is when people on the left now fantasize about who's going to deliver us from Donald Trump. Do you notice how many billionaires show up on that list? <laughs> right, right. Like Bloomberg, Howard Schultz, <laughs> right. Oprah. I mean, like this is the disease. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying any of those are bad people. But do you notice how weird it is yeah. that we have a plutocrat who pretended to be a populist in power, and when people don't like him, our first instinct is, who's another rich person we can throw at him? Mm-hmm. I don't think we realize how warped our culture is. Where, like, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm kind of of the view that most politicians should have like a net worth of like $100,000. You know, I, I just think we are, have gotten to a place where we almost assume that you have to be a super wealthy person to govern us. And that has warped our society because it leads to um, people governing us who have no sense of what it's like to be a regular person yeah. and who have no, and, and, and who, whose, whose main skill is either faking a concern for regular people or exploiting regular people's fears and, you know, diverting them onto other people. Um, and, I think we all have to look at, you know, whether it's the reverence for a Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or other, we also look what's going on with us in this era that we venerate these billionaire saviors instead of our own civic traditions that we that we venerate a Mark Zuckerberg instead of going to a community meeting that we that we kind of actually believe when these people claim to be our emancipators, there's something of a, I don't know, you know, wealth version of Stockholm syndrome um, where we are like falling for our captors. Yeah. I, I, I'd love to like talk to you for an hour and a half about how journalism is complicit in this. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we should go there because I think it would be an hour and a half. Um, um, but maybe we'll come back to it. But I kind of just, I want to keep going where you just were. I mean, you, you said that you were, I think it was in your interview with Ezra Klein, which I thought was such a great conversation. Um, you said that you were meant to send your editor an afterword. 
to the book with prescriptions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but you but that and I and I agree with you on this that that our fixation on like the prescription and the solution and the plan and doing that immediately is is part of the problem. Um, but I know people must be asking you this, and I, I want to know how are you thinking about? Um, I mean, what what are you hearing? Like, because what you what you said to Ezra is that you you trust people to take up these questions and ideas and figure out what to do with them in the context of their lives and their work. Um, so tell me about that conversation you're hearing as you're now out there. Yeah, I mean, I I think it. It flows from my attitude to to solutionism. Yeah. Um, flows from my sense of what being a writer is, and my sense of the fact that this is a big society where a lot of people have different roles, and 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 I don't need myself. I don't need me to be. I don't need me to play all the roles. In fact, I have no desire to do that. Um, I think what a writer can do with a provocation. Um, with the provocation of a of a book like this, is to force a conversation that maybe people would prefer to avoid in certain circles, or to elevate to discussion things that are kind of, you know, lurking in people's hearts but not quite said out loud, or yeah. to take things people kind of say in private to you, the writer, and put them out in public so that so that then people can say, well, yeah, I kind of agree with that, and have conversations within their within their communities or within their organizations that they wouldn't easily have without it. It's a lot easier to metaphorically retweet something than to tweet something yourself. And I think part of what a book like this does is it just gives, you know, that 25-year-old at Facebook who's actually deeply uncomfortable with Facebook's power and behavior, it gives them a way to say, hey, have you seen that book? It's interesting. I mean, I don't agree with all of it, but have Mm -hmm. you? I mean, that's kind of interesting. And are you actually, are are people like that talking to you? Yes. I'm getting messages every day, email, I mean, all confidential, like all the time telling me, actually, you have no idea, you have no idea, you have no idea how bad it is. I mean, actually, I, I feel the struggle. People are telling me of their struggles within these organizations. I've become this, you know, confession booth um, <laughs> for all kinds of people who are decent people, who know themselves to be part of indecent systems and who want to do better, but are not sure whether to, to you know, in the words of that old Albert Hirschman book, like exit voice or loyalty and 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 do you do you leave do you stay do you fight do you speak up do you bite your you know bite your tongue until you're in a senior position all those things and to, part of what i think a writer can do is name unnameable things or things that are awkward to talk about force the conversation as i said but also like i think of this book as a book that is trying to dismantle a culture a particular culture and set of Myths and mistaken vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Well, That's that, something that, that consensus, I feel like, right? Like what? Correct. What is the consensus at the root of our culture that we haven't named? Correct. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's like that feels doable to me. I mean, I'm not mm-hmm. sure that I will achieve it, but that feels like within the territory of what a writer could aspire to do—to make people see terms in a new way. I mean, I hope. Krista, that no one ever uses the word thought leader ironically again after my book. You know, that's that's like the kind of aspiration that I have. Like, I, I hope no one ever just calls something a win-win again without, you know, having a mm. sense of irony around it. And, mm. and I think there's actually a lot of power in that. I think that's 
that's what a writer can do, can, can help people see things in a new way. And, and next time you hear someone say, well, we're, you know, our company is doing well by doing good. And if there's a small little, you know, uh, pee under the mattress when you hear that, saying, hey, that's something kind of weird there, that would be, for me, feel like an achievement. Because I actually think a, a lot of how you get decent people upholding an indecent system is is culture, is vocabulary, is values. And if you mm. can if you can start to warp those or just twist them around, I actually think you can get somewhere. I think what I cannot do and what I refuse to do, even though there is pressure to do it, um, is like set a new marginal tax rate. I, what I cannot do is figure out exactly what we do with inheritance taxes. I mean, I think we should probably raise them, but I'm not going to, I can't do that now on this show as much as you know, I'm asked all the time to do those kinds of things just because I've written a book right. critiquing our economic system. You know, no. where I'm asked to like, well, like, well, like, what do you think about like how do we, how do we fix our healthcare system? Should we do the Medicare for all? Like, those get too prosaic too fast. There are people who are very good at that, and I don't think I need to do that. I think we don't do a lot of the right things as a culture because a lot of bad ideas are in the way. And I think what I can do is clear the brush of bad ideas so that the people who have been thinking and working on those issues for a long time can have an easier time getting their work done because they don't have to deal with, um, you know, erroneous, uh, erroneous ideas and, and mythologies. But I think that you, you do name some really basic contradictions and, in fact, moral morally repugnant contra- uh, contradictions that are right at the heart of our society and very close to home. For example, that, one example that you often cite, which frankly I had never quite thought of it in exactly this way before, is that rather than talking about, um, you know, the tax structure, um, you have wealthy uh, people and and philanthropists and companies, you know, funding a charter school like a model charter school, but not taking on the underlying issue, the, the underlying fact that somebody who's growing up in it, that the public school in a wealthy neighborhood is going to be better funded than the public school in a poor neighborhood, and that yeah, I mean, I right? was just in I was just in Ohio, the public schools in. The city I mean, of we Akron. all accept that, right? Like we Get all ten thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars a year. That's the per pupil spending in Akron. Mm-hmm. There are there's another district in Ohio where the per pupil spending is thirty one thousand dollars a year. I maybe maybe one of your listeners can explain that to a six year old child. I know I would be unable to. Mm-hmm. I I can't even if you hired me as an attorney for that. I just couldn't make the argument. I don't know what the argument would be for why it would be okay. Um, to do that, and why I, I find it very hard to explain to a child why they have to get one third as much educational resource as someone mm-hmm. else because mommy and daddy's house is, you know, less expensive. Um, well, and this, those are the kinds uh, yeah. of things that we all sort of tolerate. Well, right, and, and I think that also goes back to these like these these values we hold without understanding we hold them that somehow. Where there is great, I think it is this American thing. Where there is greater wealth, people have worked hard, right? Somehow they've yeah. deserved it. There's honor in that. Um, yeah. 
that's how, right? That That is the American way. Yeah, they didn't just pull themselves up by the bootstraps. They invented boots. Yeah, right. Right, but then how did we get to the point where then it makes it okay, right, that um, that 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 shapes this, who gets good education and who doesn't. I think there's a, a in, in this moment in time, there is a really gaping, there, there's, a, there's a chasm between the core of the American self-image and the reality of who we are. Yeah. I think if you were to ask most Americans on the left and right to just kind of riff on the thoughts of what makes America special for an hour. I think in virtually all of those conversations, the idea that you kind of invent yourself, you make who you are, you you make your own destiny, you pursue your gifts and you rise to your level. I mean, I think that would come up among people on the left and the right. I think it would come up in rural America and urban America. I mean, we that you know, I think that story of mobility and rising to your level um, is a deeply widely held story. And the simple fact of the matter is that story is less true in the United States of America than in almost any other rich country. We are the least socially mobile rich country. Yeah, we're completely unusual. The thing we think we are off the charts on, we Mm -hmm. are off the charts, but the wrong end of the chart. Mm -hmm. In America, your parents' income has the greatest predictive power over your income of any of the other rich countries. And so at the very heart of America in this moment today is we are not who we think we are, which is what I said to the Aspen Institute. We are not who we think we are. Mm-hmm. And, and that is always a hard thing to hear, but it's also a creative thing to hear because I think what I'm not saying is you got to live up to my values. What I'm suggesting is we got to live up to our values. Yeah. I think the values of, if, for example, of people on the political right in America, I think the whole case that they make, whatever you think about it, for limited government, is rooted in the idea that when you leave individuals alone, they can pursue their dreams. They, there's a deep belief in people rising according to their merit. Yeah. Well, if the data suggests that, that almost never happens, you need to fight harder for your beliefs. And I think we can all do better at not realizing someone else's values in Scandinavia, but actually just Mm. recognizing our own. We have ceased to be the country. You know, today in America, you have a like crapshoot odds of out earning your parents. It used to be a 90% chance. Yeah. That is a very big change in the basic fabric of what it means to be an American. Um, and I and I actually think if we look at these things closely, going back to you know what can a writer? Do, I think if we just show if if we're able to just look at ourselves, um, we might conclude that we have we have slumped from 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 being the country we thought we were. Um, oh, sorry, you were you talked about um, <laughs> yourself, your confessional booth that has arisen in your email inbox. Um, I know. Um, I was reading a review that somebody wrote in the Stanford Social Innovation Review, you know, Uh someone who claimed his place in this system and just was, you know, saying this, it's that he is feeling challenged, those of us working for social change within existing systems of power to consider whether we are inadvertently perpetuating the problems we seek to solve. 
um, he said, it is a very personal challenge to me, went on. Um, it struck me uh, as I was, as I, and, and I was also hearing about somebody who was in one of these dinner groups, uh, this discussion group sparked by this, by the conversation you've started with the book. And, you know, it, it, it did strike me. I also agree that what um, we so leap to the plan and the project and the solution and we don't, we don't, we don't do discernment and reflection and we actually waste time. Um, and that that confessional moment <laughs> in terms of real change, whether it's societal or, uh, or personal, is actually really important, you know? It's, uh-huh. it's like going to a 12-step meeting and saying, I am an alcoholic, right? Like, that's the first step. Um, so You don't anyway. start by just pouring yourself a Coke and saying, well, let's just move on and we'll just you know, move forward. Or if you it's, just immediately come up with a plan, it's probably not good enough, right? It's probably I'll, not I'll good enough. You, you need to have some discernment. That's the muscle we've lost, that moral discernment, right? Moral imagination. And, and part, of, part of the journey that I went on with this book is realizing that if it was just a, a provocation and a set of arguments and, and a set of reporting to make people look at themselves and their society, it would have a certain power and a certain effect, but it would not, um, it would not have the effect that I wanted it to. And I was reading this, um, this book, The Captive Mind by... Cheshwam Miłosz and 1953 um, Polish intellectual kind of lamenting how um, his kind of generation of classmates and peers had gone from being kind of freedom-loving thinkers to kind of giving in to Stalinism just because it was convenient and, you know, that's where the jobs were and that's where the connections were and he kind of watched all these people just, you know, kind of lay down for Stalinism. And he's very dismayed. And he wrote this book, The Captive Mind. And he, and he called the book, you know, which is a pretty serious thing to accuse all your friends of succumbing to Stalinism. Yep. On the other hand, he said he, he called the book a debate with those of my friends who were yielding a little by little to the, new, to the magic influence of the new faith. And I read that and I thought, ah, you can... You can write a criticism, a profound and fierce criticism of people among whom are many of your friends. Um, and you can lament their giving in to the magic influence of this new, new faith, but you can do it in a way that's a debate with your friends. And I tried to have that perspective in the book, but I also, after the book was done, um, my wife, Priya Parker, is a conflict resolution facilitator and she helped me think through how do we actually use the book offline to create a moment for people not to leap to a solution but to sit with the problem and to sit and think about their own role in it as you say Mm -hmm. and so what we did was we created we decided to kind of create a little toolkit to help people self-organize their own dinners around the country in their own community you can just like order a pizza with your friends or you can you know have a show off your cooking skills or whatever. And we're having dozens of these dinners around the country, 35 states or something like that. And the idea is for people to, you know, sit with these questions of what is my relationship to the system? What is my relationship to um, 
inequality and the injustices in this country? What is, am I, you know, am I actually working on the right side to solve these problems? Am I enabling these problems by day and then, and then, you know, tinkering with, you know, tinkering them with them by night? Am I, is my regular job as opposed to my kind of side hustle um, on the side of justice? Um, all these things. And to create space for people to, to grapple with that by themselves in their community without, you know, the a, a lecturing writer wagging their finger at them, um, but in their in in their trusted communities. And these have started. And what's been so amazing to me is actually the openness of a lot of the people, the kinds of people that I implicate in the book. The openness, the remarkable openness to looking at these questions. And that would be uh, philanthropists, business leaders management consultants <laughs> all of the, all the smart people working in finance you know and, it, and it's also activists yeah who have to raise money mm-hmm. from yeah. silicon valley tech people and who have to make choices about okay they kind of want me to stop saying the word inequality if i get their three million dollar grant should mm-hmm. i stop saying inequality to get the three million dollar grant it's people who and you that know, that can be an existential question existential question trust me like and in fact one of the things i found is the people who fundraise are often the most interesting in this world because they are the bridge often they are actually making what i call kind of real change they work in communities they they seek to work democratically they actually seek to fight for people not just what do you mean people who fundraise who are you talking about if you run let's say some kind of advocacy group for let's say, undocumented people in California on some rights issue, okay? Often the actual work you do is very genuine change. You're working in the courts or you're trying to protect them from police and you're, and you're, and you're working with democratic institutions. You're embedded in that community. You're part of that world. It, this is not like top-down colonial change. You are in that world. But if you actually succeed at it, there'll be the opportunity to raise money right? And to fund that work. And that's when you end up knocking on the door, maybe, of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative or the Gates Foundation or, you know, the Ford Foundation or any of those other things. And what I've heard from people who have to do that, but who have been kind of organizers their whole, they're not from that business world. They're not from the money world. They're activists who, in a way, rise through success, rise to a place where they have the opportunity to get like a $5 million grant from a billionaire but what then happens is the billionaire wants something other you know in addition to just helping and i mean the things i hear are amazing like i hear stories all the time of you know literally like we got it we got a grant and we were kind of expected to not use the word inequality in any of our tweets anymore yeah. they want us to say opportunity um mm. someone sent me something the other day where it was like it was an activist or, you know, kind of a, a civic group that basically r- wrote in a request for funding to their wealthy potential benefactors that, you know, don't worry, the kind of change we pursue um, doesn't require sacrifice. It also benefits wealthy people as well. I mean, yeah. it's like yeah. these people are in a position where they have to, the to, to reassure, yeah, reassure mm-hmm. wealthy people mm-hmm. that you will benefit also from helping me. You know... In your um, when the, in the talk you gave in Aspen in 2015, um, you 
as I say, you, you, you were there as a person living these questions, too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, you said, I love this community. You were speaking of that community of, sorry, thought leaders, <laughs> uh, <laughs> activists, philanthropists, business leaders. And I fear for all of us, myself first and foremost, that we may not be as virtuous as we think we are. History may not be as kind to us as we hope it will. Our role in the inequities of our age may not be remembered well. I mean, you you also spoke poignantly, I think, about living, you know, you live in Brooklyn, right? You have worked for McKinsey. You've given great TED Talks. You make money writing books and on the on the speaker circuit. But you, you also talked about, like, in your world of peers and friends, um, uh, um, you know, this... These inflated notions people have that 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 still do feel existential of what it takes to make a living, support a family. Um, so I I don't want to ask you for solutions for other people, but like how has this investigation and this conversation you're part of now, like what is it sparking in you that perhaps you didn't expect when you began? How are you working with it? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I say in the acknowledgments, the best way to know about a problem is to be part of it, and. I think I was only able to to write. This is not something that has you know happened to others. I think we all in America today live in a culture that has that venerates money to the exclusion of other values, and that gives people you know um, we've destroyed many of the ways of you know frankly making a living that do not involve fealty to this you know what I call market world in the book. And as someone who writes and thinks for a living, I have definitely not been successful in avoiding it, nor have I had the, you know, the the courage or stomach to avoid it at all times. I mean, I've tried to live my life well, but for all the reasons you say, it's very complicated to avoid, just the same way it was complicated for, you know, like painters in Florence in a certain age to avoid the Medicis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what it's, what the investigation has has left me with is thinking about um, even as a writer, how do I make sure that I am working on that? That I'm using my, you know, power, however limited it is, to interrogate systems and ask the questions you're not supposed to be asking, instead of doing the kind of journalism or or thinking or speaking that merely props up power. Um, and that shows up in a million different ways. It shows up in, you know, um, it shows up in the choice, first of all, that I decided to make and really agonize over about whether to write this book. It's in some ways not incredibly prudent to go after everybody in a book. Um, but it also shows up for me every day in thinking about, you know, am I using my voice to say inconvenient things that might that might um, cause you know me to lose um, friends or or you know social capital to put it in those market terms, mm-hmm. um, but that are part of maybe pushing us in some small way to where we need to get as a society. Why did you put the you 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 Why did you put in the acknowledgments that? You know, it was only at the end of the book that actually we got the story of the Aspen speech, and mm-hmm. and you know, and you saying 
um, which I think is really important for you to say. Where is this? Um, I, uh, sorry, there is no, um, I know you chose, but yeah, you know, you said uh, there's, I can't, I can't find exactly where you said there's nothing in here that I'm not implicated in, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason I kept it in the end was yeah. I, I, I tried different things. You know, I, I, I did have an opening mm-hmm. chapter that was personal at some point, basically a similar thing. Um, but, you know, with each of my books, I have wrestled with the question about how to use myself. And it's a very common thing in, in this kind of writing and nonfiction writing. And, you know, my first book was there was no I, and it was entirely about just India changing as a country. And yeah. I had a very wise editor who said, no, you've got to do this entire thing through you. It's your India that's changing. It's the country your your family left and then you returned to that is metamorphic. So it's we need to see how your your India gave way to another India. Um, so that book, you know, started with no I and acquired one. Um, my second book, I did have an eye in there, and I kind of arrived in the middle of the narrative once I'd actually started my reporting. And, you know, page 200-something, there was suddenly the first eye, and then I was with you along from the ride after that. Yeah. And my friends read it and said, you know, got to get rid of the eye. So that book started with an eye, and the eye was removed. Um, and in this book, again, I, I went back and forth, but I just felt that the material here, um, I just didn't want to make the book about me. Mm-hmm. And I think while I am and have been, and many of us are part of this culture, I think the, you know, I, I didn't want to confuse hanging around in these spaces with, like, actually being a billionaire, which I think is a really different thing. And this is something that mm-hmm. is happening. Um, I, I wanted to write about the people making the choices to make the world organized this way. Mm-hmm. And I think... The, it's their world, and the rest of us are playing in it. And that's an important part of the story, the rest of us. But a lot of people write about the rest of us who are playing in their world. I think what often doesn't happen is anybody actually writing about the people who make the world the way it is from their eyes. Um, but, but maybe I, this is a good place for us to talk about journalism's complicity in this. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> because, um, you know, a newspaper like the New York Times which put a great, wonderful review of your book on the front page of the book review, which helps, right? Like, so this is the kind of spiral. Um, In my mind, and I love the New York Times, and there's a sense in which, you know, I have read it religiously across the years, and yet I feel now more than ever uh, that it is part of creating and supporting this very narrative that you're talking about. I, I think part and of I what I'm I shouldn't say at, that. I shouldn't even be saying that because it's not what I do on my show. But, you know, the media you and I love I, I'll tell you this. also I, is part of this consensus of ev- strengthening Everybody it. is part of the common culture we share. I think this is the problem. Yes, but journalism has a very specific power Correct. To shine but, a light but, but, on and... Uh, correct. Anyway. But, but Chris, that's not just... I fully agree with you, but I have to say, I mean, it's also every private school in America that now has to raise mm-hmm. endowments and, and, has a, and has a mission of service and makes kids do 50 hours of community service, but is basically has like, 
you know, 18 millionaires on the board and is totally in fealty to, to, mm-hmm. to you know, wealthy donors. It's every university that is courting, you know, the next $30 million science center donation and puts, you know, whatever those people want ahead of its educational mission. It is this it is absolutely the media which you know tells uncritical stories about um about people giving back without asking hard questions about how they how they take and and kind of well and i what i would say more than that i mean i you know public radio which i'm part of is you know like as so many places i we've seen and I think this has even accelerated since 2008, the kind of let's do the numbers mentality, right? We're surrounded by ticker tapes of what the market is doing today when, the mar- when that's not even the way markets work. And when the, what the market is doing today, there's such a huge disconnect between what the market is doing you know, this hour and the economic struggles of most Americans. And yeah, I mean, to I, me, that I, is like, that's, again, that's, that's anyway... I don't think I I, I think your instincts are right. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can attack things like the attack prosaic things like the level of inequality or the level of even societal anger without going to a deeper place of uprooting a culture Mm -hmm. in which money is the fundamental currency of value. Right. And I mean, yeah, it's like the business pages of newspapers which are so much bigger than they used to be, mm-hmm. are in some ways the most interesting pages of newspapers because there we've given in, and this is a reflection of that, but also as I, as I feel a, uh, a solidifier of that, that that business is is like really the most real lens on life. So I mean, and there's a, yeah, yeah, and, the, and there's a sense that I heard so much in reporting the book that like mm-hmm. business is how you make things different now. Yeah. In every age, it's something else. Maybe at one point it was the Catholic Church, and another point right. it was, you know, seafaring to like far off colonies. But now in our in our age, and it, it was business. nuclear arms. It was weapons. Correct. People, uh, um, and there and there's this notion that you kind of you years, don't get yeah. to pick the locus of power in your mm-hmm. age. It mm-hmm. just is what it is, mm-hmm. and you have to try to make things better within that. And mm-hmm. a lot of the people that I write about basically are kind of agnostic or even cynical about where the locus of power is in our time. They just assume it's in business. Yeah. And so what they're going to do is just do the best they can to to make change that way. But, of course, what's, what that obscures is it's also a very convenient thing to cling to because it's a way of making change that you know, doesn't ask you to sacrifice in any way, which has traditionally been at the heart of any kind of spiritual or moral tradition, the idea that sometimes you have to deny yourself for the, for the good of others. Yeah. And what the, this business religion, where it's unique, is it promises deliverance from the very idea of sacrifice. It, it promises that you can have your cake and eat it too, that you can make a killing and make a difference and you can help people and help yourself. And what, a, what an appealing... Um, what an appealing fantasy. And do you feel that this is a conversation you can have like within journalism about its role in I, I, I think I that? am. I mean, I think mm-hmm. one of the things that's been really striking is actually journalists reading the book. And, mm-hmm. You know, of course, you send out books to journalists before they reach general public. So before the book came out, for a few months, journalists were reading it. And a lot of the you know private reactions I got were, wow, you're kind of making me think more critically about these people that 
we often mm. give mm. a pass to. You know, if someone gives a three million dollar donation to some arts program or this and that, there's often a very flattering story. And how that money was made is not part of the story, or the fact that, you know, um, that fact that someone like David Rubenstein from the Carlyle Group, who, you know, has been part of an industry that's pushing for um, taxes on people like him to be lower, the fact that someone like him then comes in and like picks up the tab for for the Washington Monument repair and says, you know, government doesn't have any money anymore. I got to step up, even though he's one of the reasons the government doesn't have any money anymore. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that that can get written up in newspapers as, you know, I think he was the subject of a 60 minute special that essentially was like, wow, look, he's a patriotic philanthropist. Yeah. Um, you know, I just think one of the fascinating things that, that probably has affected American journalism and the rest of our society is the Andrew Carnegie bargain, which he kind of set out in his Gospel of Wealth tract um, late 19th century, which is essentially, if we give away a lot, don't ask how the money was made. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways, American journalism, but also just American culture, has agreed to play by the Carnegie rule. Well, we, we've also never told the story that way, right? Right. We just point at Carnegie libraries and Correct. this legacy of Carnegie libraries, uh, among other things, and we don't tell the full story. Correct. Or, or reflect on the full story. I mean, you can't understand for, I mean, how much is written about charter schools these days. But you can't understand charter schools without understanding who's on the board of these schools, who's giving to these schools, who's, who's doing these, which, which are the rich people pushing this. And then you got to start understanding where do those rich people live, right? And, and how have they fought to keep their property taxes kind of ring-fenced in the areas they live? How have they raised money for the PTA for their particular public schools so that, that their money stays in their own public school? Like... I don't want to read another story about a banker giving to the Harlem Children's Zone or Goldman Sachs giving twenty dollars to, you know, the Promise Academy, like, without just doing a full audit on that institution or person's relationship to the system. I think part of what I'm trying to do in the book is actually just to widen the angle on on any of these good gestures. The argument is never that the good gesture is not real or it's or it's fake. It, it it's it, well, it is fake in the sense of when you zoom out and you look at the good deeds role in the context of what you're also enabling, supporting, upholding, or 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 abiding. Um, often, that good deed takes on a very different shade. Um, somebody who was part of one of these discussion groups, um, I'm trying to find the note I made, said. Um, that it was, you know, very that people were asking questions out loud that they hadn't asked before. Um, also, I'm just trying to find my notes. Um, it was it was a discomfort, and I and I think I shared this to some extent um, reading the book with the sense that these are evil people, um, as opposed to. Um, Immoral. I really want to find it because I want to quote it. But as opposed to Im- that, these are immoral actions, um, and, and in a way that I think that gets back to what you and I have been, you and I spoke about a little while ago. That the problem is we don't have a robust vocabulary to talk about morality or but immoral actions, right. civic immorality, and and but we do we're really good at talking about evil people. 
Well, I think we also live in a very complex society where, mm. you know, I, I don't think that people, even, you know, some people like the private equity people who've gone into Washington and tried to get this lower tax rate for themselves, um, I don't think they're going in. I don't think like they're Mr. Burns and the I don't think they're these evil mm-hmm. monsters. I think they genuinely think that, you know, if they're allowed to be taxed at a certain level, it'll lead to more job growth and this and that. Like, I, maybe some of them are insincere, but I, in my experience, many of them are sincere. They're just deeply wrong and, and have huge blind spots. But a lot of what I found is that these are decent people, you know, reasonably convinced that they're doing right, but who are guided by such flawed ideas that they that they're participating in cruelty that is almost unimaginable to them. I mean, you have mm-hmm. someone like David Rubenstein giving lectures on the 13th Amendment and, you know, like, and I actually don't think it's purely cynical. I think it's actually deeply naive in many cases. Mm-hmm. And I, I, um, well, let me hold this question for a minute. We're just about to close. Um, you know, this is something you um, you said this in Aspen, and you re- it's very much through the book. I want my new son to have everything I can give him, even though I know that this is the beginning of the inequality I loathe. Um, I think, our, you know, where, when it comes to our children... <laughs> And how much we want for them, and this like gets to the issues of schools. Um, this is where this stuff gets really messy. Um, so I just I wonder how if you how you continue continue to wrestle with that, just that, and you you yeah yeah. I mean, one of the things that I I thought a lot about I mean, living in Brooklyn, this very parent heavy environment, um, is one way to. One of the things I try to do in the book is actually to make people think about inequality in new ways and using new language. And one of those frames is to actually think about it as kind of who gets to own the future when the future rains on us and who harvests the rainwater of the future. And I think there's a lot of future that falls on us and just some people collect most of it. Um, another way that I you know, have thought about reframing it is to say... Um, one way to think about inequality is the line you draw between your love for your own children and your love for everybody else's children. Yeah. And at one level, it seems obvious that you, you love your own children. But actually, if you think about what makes this society um, as, as decent as it is and the achievements that we've, that we've built to get here, we actually don't value our children to the infinity point. Um, we all love our children, but we all generally embrace a bunch of rules that that set a cap on just doing best by our children and, and also make sure we, we do right by other people's children. And that means paying your taxes. You pay your taxes, you know, and we kind of willingly do that because we understand you can't just give it all to your children. We got to take care of everybody's and, and, and we, and we, you know, nourish common institutions that and, and systems and welfare and various programs that we may not use and our children may not use, but that we think should be part of a system and available to, to someone else's children. And I think one way to think about where we are in America now is that our 
we're we're sort of we've regressed a little bit to a kind of feudal, a little more feudal kind of place where our love for our own children has just is far outstripping our our concern for other people's children. And no one's ever gonna, whether it's my own child or 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 you and yours, no one's ever gonna take that away from you. But I think the question of a healthy society is where do you where do you draw that line so that there is place um, in your heart, not only for your own children, but everybody's. And, you know, something that's so ironic about this, which is just representative of the mess we're in culturally, politically now, is that, you know, the the hardest edge of the of the inequity and the hypocrisy that you're describing um, falls on people for whom even what you just said would be you know, people who are just trying to make sure their children have something to eat, right? So they don't even mm-hmm. have that equation to, to to wrestle with. And yet, I wonder, um, do you know, is it, and you're very clear that this phenomenon, these, this consensus is absolutely, you know, not red or blue. Um, it's as much a if, if not even more, a crisis, a problem of the left as the right, whatever that means. But I mean, do you, but because we're so divided now, because there are these chasms, I mean, do you, is this conversation you're having, do you, is, is it happening across what I hate these, you know, these ways of dividing up reality and in some way they're looser, but they're, whether we have, they're what we have. Is it happening across this red-blue divide and this urban rural divide some of these I will tell you something hard. from yeah. from my experience that I think is actually very surprising it was certainly surprising to me as I've been working on the book for three years I've traveled a bunch around the country for the book but also just for you know personal and other things and you know people all kinds of people people you meet whether it's in a cab or in a or in a you know you're out in a restaurant or wherever you run into people and people ask you what you do, what do you do, what do you do? And whenever it's come to, you know, I'm a writer, I'm working on a book, or what's your book? If it goes that far, one of the things I've found is people instinctively, when I, when I say, well, I'm writing a book about kind of rich and powerful people who say they're changing the world but really are consolidating their own wealth and power. I have found that people in the hinterland, in the heartland of this country, instinctively understand that faster and more readily than people in New York and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And people in kind of red places, that didn't strike them as a lefty argument. I think that strikes them as like something deeply resonant with their experience of the last 30 or 40 years. I think actually the exciting moment that we're in, um, because it's hard to see in some ways beyond the particulars of who's on the scene right now. And mm-hmm. it's, and so a Trump will get attention. Or you say there's Ocasio on the left or Cynthia Nixon, these particular figures. And so our imagination is limited by who they are and what their platforms are and their own limitations. Um, if I were to kind of synthesize a little bit up from why are all these figures here, I actually think there is a bulging consensus of 60, 70, 80% of Americans who believe in one form or another that this country needs transformational reform, Mm -hmm. that it is not at a tweaking moment, 
that it is not at a dial turning moment. Now, there's obviously huge disagreement on what the transformational reform is, and much of what people want is 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 opposite. But I actually still think it's very significant that we that we have, I think, a consensus for deep system reform, because that is actually a new idea um, in in the context of our recent history. For yeah. 30 or 40 years, I think we have been living under this idea that what happens privately, a thousand flowers blooming, companies growing, and these little initiatives, that that, you know, that kind of incremental approach to bettering our society would save us. And I actually think we're now at a place where we are ripe, much as we were 100 years ago when we were in the, the first Gilded Age and you had these mm. great inequalities and great new technologies and a lot of dislocated people and a lot of anger and a lot of philanthropy. And yeah. what that gave way to was an age of reform. The age of a million little initiatives gave way to an age of reform. And I think we are actually not far away. And that may be measured in years, it may be measured in a couple of decades. But I think we are ripe for a new age of reform in American life where these basic questions of what are the, what's the relationship between work and healthcare. Well, how do we do social mobility in an age of the gig economy and 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 you know iPhones? What is our relationship to place as companies and as workers in an you know in an era where it's so easy for a company to make something here and sell there and move their money here? But what what what's what's place mean in this world? These are some big questions that, in some ways, you know, to the thread of the show are are. Sp- almost spiritual questions about the economy and about our our society. And part of the drum that I've been beating, um, as much as personally I would love to see Donald Trump gone, is I think it would actually be a waste if all we got rid of was Trump. Mm -hmm. I think Trump needs to be the end of something bigger, which is an end of the veneration of money, an end of the faith in billionaire saviors, an end of trusting that the people who cause problems are the best at fixing them, and actually that he and his departure could be the spark of a moment and an age where we actually solve problems together again through deep reform at the root for everybody. Okay. That's your, that's your last word, and a good one it is. Thank you. Thank you.